Genesis chapter 14, we're going to read the whole chapter, beginning in verse 1. I'm reading from the ESV. It says, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elassar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goiim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheva Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goaim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elassar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, in the Amorite, brother of Eskol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been captive, had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I should not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. Let's pray once more together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we believe that your word, through your word, your voice, you speak to your people. 
God, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would illuminate your word to our hearts, not only to understand it, God, but to empower us to obey it. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word in this place, but doers. God, I pray that you would mobilize us to engage in what you are doing, not just in our lives or in our church, but in the community and in the world, God. By your spirit, by your word, and through your people, Lord, you can change. You can change hearts as your people declare your word by your spirit. We pray that you would do that in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I would categorize myself as being somewhat risk averse, which has made the last several years of my life very interesting. I don't take risks very often. I don't take risks very easily. I I have great respect for people who, who are taking risks, who are brave. I would love to someday be able to skydive or, you know, rock climb or camp someplace where there are animals and no bathrooms. I've always dreamed of being the guy who can go to a familiar restaurant and order something new. It's too risky. I had a conversation with some people recently about our In-N-Out orders, because if you live in California, you have an In-N-Out order. It's the only thing that you've never seen anyone at In-N-Out looking at the menu and going, ah, gosh, what am I going to get today? Even if it's on the secret menu, you know what it is. We were talking about, I'd never tried chopped chilies on my double-double. Never. Why? I'm sure it's delicious. But what if it's not? I can't risk having an unpleasant experience at In-N-Out. The world will come apart at the seams. I don't take risks very often. Many people today are are risk averse. The, The risk management industry is a $5 billion industry annually. People pay and corporations pay tons of money so that consultants will come in and help them understand what risks are appropriate to take and what risks might be too dangerous to take. But risk is a part of life. Every time you go outside, every time you get in a car, every time you apply for a job, falling in love is a risk. Trusting somebody is a risk. Investing money is a risk. Even putting your money in the bank, which they say is the most like the safest thing you can do, is not without risk. We take risks every single day. Something that stuck out to me this week as I was studying this text was how massive the risk is that Abram takes in this text. He's living in Hebron, which is his home base in the land of Canaan. God promised, I remember God called Abram out of his father's house, out of his land, out of his, his, his kindred to go into a land that he would show him. And he goes into the land of Canaan and God tells him, all this land I'm going to give to you. And he builds an altar and he worships and he, he's afraid and, and because of the famine. And so he goes into Egypt, but God calls him back and he, and he worships again. And then he moves to Hebron and he builds an altar. And, and this is going to be Abram home base in the land of Canaan, the land that God promised him, but that Abram does not yet possess. 
So Abram's living in Hebron and God, God's word tells us that there are these territories around him at war. Five kings against four. These five kings served uh, Cheddar Lammer, this one king. He's kind of the, the, the pinnacle king in this group. These five kings in their territories, they were subject to Chedorlaomer for 12 years, but then in the 13th year, they rebelled. They declared their independence and they were, they were free for a year. And after a year, uh, Chedorlaomer goes, I'm gonna get these guys back under my thumb. And so he gets his allied kings and he starts going on a rampage through the land. Now, if you, if you have maps in the back of your Bible, you can look at a map potentially of, of Abram's life and see some of these cities on there. What's interesting in the way that the word of God describes their, uh, their, their, their war path, it goes through every single aspect of what would become the nation of Israel and even beyond. It goes through the entire land. And so Chedorlaomer comes through and he conquers the land that God promised to give Abram. Abram is new. He's, he's new into the land. This land is mine. And this king comes in and takes everything. They make their way into Sodom and Gomorrah and they take all the inhabitants captive and then they make their way back up the, 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 the west of the Jordan all the way back up to Damascus. Chedorlaomer just conquered the entire land and since Lot was living in Sodom, Lot is taken captive and on his way north through Damascus back to where these kings came from. Now, Abram could have played it safe. Abram didn't have to engage. But for the sake of his nephew, Lot, he does. See, in the ancient Near East, not just in Israel, but in other parts of the world as well, there's something known as the kinsman redeemer. In a family, if someone in the family was in trouble or uh, financially or, 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 or physically or whatever it is, it was the responsibility of the nearest kinsman to the nearest family members to come to their rescue. If someone was in financial hardship and they had to sell themselves into slavery, it was the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer to come and pay their price, to pay, uh, to, to set their relative free. The, the, the most common story we know about kinsman redeemer in scripture is the story of Ruth and Boaz from the book of Ruth. Ruth is in a is destitute. Her husband has died. She has no children. And in that day, a, a late wife, a widowed wife, did not have the right to inherit her husband's land. Only their children did. And so with no children, Ruth is destitute. She, she can't be in the land, which means she can't farm. She can't make a living for herself. She's in trouble. And so Boaz is a near relative in order to provide for her. He marries Boaz, or he, he marries Ruth, provides a family and redeems her, sets her free from her situation. And so Abram is a kinsman redeemer. He is the nearest kinsman to Lot. And so though he could have seen the risk as too great and not engaged for the sake of his responsibility, not just socially, culturally, but eventually would be a responsibility that the word of God would spell out 
for God's people, he goes and he rescues his nephew. He rescues Lot. Now, from Abram's perspective, to go to war, Abram is risking his life. He's going to war. War is dangerous. And so Abram is, is risking his life. And in this series, through the faith of Abram, we have been trying to understand uh, the, the, the story from Abram's perspective. But I want to invite you to explore this story from a different perspective. I want you to explore this story from the perspective of the original reader of the book of Genesis, the Israelites. This book was written to God's people, to the Israelites, to the nation of Israel, to the the worshipers of the God of Israel. And so they know that God has promised them. They are descendants of Abram. They know that God has promised Abram the land. He's promised to make Abram a great nation. He's promised to bless Abram. And so they read this story. We read this story. We know the promises given to Abram. If Abram dies, it will have been evidence that God is not able to keep his promises. Abram is risking his life, but the risk for the reader here is, is God going to be faithful to his promises? Is God going to be able to to protect Abram? Is God going to be able to give Abram victory? See, there's a lot at stake here. The the, the potential cost is high. what, What could be the reward is not is not small, rescuing law, it's not a small thing, but the potential cost is is huge. And the, the, the thing that gets me is that the probability of success is minimal, right? If you're going to assess risk, those are the categories. You've got the, the potential reward, the potential cost, whether or not you can actually sustain the loss should you lose what, is, uh, what, it, what it costs, and the probability of success. If there's a high uh, reward, Low loss and high probability of success, take that risk all day long. But the probability of success in here is not great. Abram had no right to assume victory. Let me tell you why. Do you remember the story of David and Goliath? A very famous story. Whether you are familiar with the Bible or not, you're probably familiar with David and Goliath. Goliath is one of the remaining members of the giant clans. The Bible talks about giant clans. When the sons of God in Genesis 6 married the daughters of men and produced children, it was this great transgression that God ended up bringing the flood to wipe out. They produced what were called the Nephilim, these giants. They were, they were these people of enormous stature and strength. They were the giant clans. And they're not the only ones. Genesis 6 is not the only time that talks about that. There's whispers of these giant clans throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Bible. And these giants were the reason Israel was afraid to take the land. They were in the land. And the the Israelites saw the giants in the land and they're like, we're like grasshoppers to them. We're not going to go in there. We can't defeat them. They're in the land. They're striking fear into the land. Well, would you believe that the first three groups of people mentioned in these list of casualties are giant clans? When Chedorlaomer is coming through the land, he defeats the Rephaim the Zuzim, and the Imim, all of these people are associated with the giant clans. 
and Chedorlaomer and his kings cut him down like a hot knife through butter. Wipes them out. It's just this list of casualties. Listen, this king and his posse, they are bad dudes. They're tearing down giant plans. They are crushing the land one after another. These civilizations fall at the hand of this man and his crew that conquers the land. Abram did not have a high probability of success. It's him and 318 men. 318 men against giant slayers. He didn't play it safe. He didn't play it safe. He goes after Lot to rescue Lot, goes after these kings and defeats them. So guess what that makes Abram? Abram has the right to the entire land of Canaan. God promised to give Abram the land of Canaan. Chedorlaomer and his kings, they come through and they conquer Canaan and Abram conquers him. That makes Abram the rightful possessor, the rightful ruler of the land. Based on ancient Near Eastern war rules, that makes him, he's the king. Abram is now the rightful possessor of the land that God had promised him. And at the end of this story, he has the right to claim the land, but he doesn't. He has the right to claim all the spoil of the land, but he doesn't. I'm still working this out in my own mind and and, and my own heart, but I think we get a sense of what Abram is doing here by looking at a couple other characters in, in, in the scriptures. The first is King David. King David was anointed the king of Israel, and yet Saul was still on the throne. God anoints him. Uh, Samuel anoints him because God told him to. Says, you're the rightful king of Israel, but Saul's still on the throne. And Saul's trying to murder David. Okay, Saul is, is bent on killing David. And David two times has the opportunity to kill Saul and take the throne, but he doesn't. David says, I will not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. I'm, I'm not going to harm the king. David trusts God will provide what God has promised in God's own, on God's own terms and in God's own time. Jesus, in his wilderness temptations, when, when he's in the wilderness and the, and the devil is tempting him, uh, Satan comes to Jesus and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, all of these I will give you if you bow down and worship me. Now, now, Jesus is the Messiah, and Scripture promises that the Messiah will inherit the nations and will rule the nations, that he's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Jesus has the right to the nations, but he will not take them from the devil, and he will not take them by any means other than what God has already prescribed for him. David and Jesus and Abram are going to trust God to provide what he has promised according to God's terms and in God's time. Abram will not receive by force what God has promised by grace. And he relinquishes the land. He moves back to Hebron and continues to live out his quiet life 
waiting for God to fulfill his promises to him. Now, church, what has God promised to us? As believers, as those who've trusted in in Jesus, what has God promised to us? God has promised us eternal life through faith in Christ. He's promised us forgiveness of sins. He's promised us sanctification. He's promised to make us holy. He's promised to make us righteous. He's promised us the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit of God. He's promised us the love of the Father, that if through faith, in, if you put your faith in Jesus, that God becomes your Father and that he adopts you into his family and that he loves you. He's promised us peace that surpasses all understanding. Peace even in times of suffering, even in times of hardship. He's promised us joy. He has promised us so much in God's word. The list goes on. He has promised us ultimately to provide a place for us in God's kingdom where we experience blessing and pleasures forevermore. It says in God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And he has promised that to his people who trust in him and who follow him in faith. Are we willing to wait on God to provide what he has promised on his terms, and in his timing? Are we trying to acquire what God has promised by human strength? Are we trying to acquire for ourselves blessing? Are we trying to acquire for ourselves peace by like crushing our opponents? Are we trying to, to acquire for ourselves and establish our own kingdoms by our own wisdom and power? Are we trying to establish our own comforts, our own peace by merely human ways? And in doing so, are we resisting the fact that God has also promised other things? Do you know that God has promised us suffering? Jesus says, I tell you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this life, you'll have tribulation, suffering, but take heart. I've overcome the world. He's promised us persecutions. He's actually promised that if we're persecuted, we're blessed. He's promised us hardship. He's promised that we would be hated for his namesake. You don't read that in your little you know, devotional on the promises of God. Let me just meditate on how I'll be hated. But Jesus says so right there in Luke 21, 17, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. See, it's so easy. And it's been so easy for me in this season of uncertainty, in this season of displacement, to try to create for myself according to my plans, according to my desires, according to my wisdom, according to what I think is right, to try to manipulate situations. And God, time and time again, over these last several months, was just like, nope, 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 nope. Closed door, closed door, closed door, closed door. Do you want to know something absolutely mind-blowing? I am grateful that Carp Community Church opened their doors to us for a season. But in terms of opportunities long-term, do you know every single organization in Carpinteria closed their doors except these ones? 
God made it abundantly clear as much as we would try to make something different happen. Hey, I'm going to give you according to my plans, according to my purposes, I'm going to give you what I have for you. It's our responsibility to trust God in that. Abram trusted God to provide what he promised on his own terms and in his own time. He's an incredible example of what it means to trust the promises of God. He had he'd promised all of these things. And so I think the reason Abram makes this risk is because he knows God has promised. He knows what can God do? If, if God is for me, who can be against me? I don't care how many giant clans Chedorlaomer and his posse have cut off. God has promised to protect me. God has promised to give me uh, numerous descendants. God has promised to make me a great nation, to bless me, that anyone who, who blesses me will be blessed and anyone who dishonors me will be cursed. They stole my nephew. That's a dishonor. God's coming after them. Abram's an incredible example of trusting the promises of God. And also, Abram's an incredible example of God's mission to seek and save the lost. See, look, Lot will, Lot will continue to go astray. Lot's kind of a punk. He's going to continue to go astray, and Abram's going to go rescue him again. We're going to see that in chapter 19. And this is how God pursues his people all throughout the Old Testament. God's people were, 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 were tempted to, to worship idols and, and commit all kinds of atrocities and, and turn from God. And God would even send them into exile because of their sin. But God was always faithful to pursue them, always faithful to come after them, always faithful to rescue them, always faithful to his promises to them. That's how God continues to pursue his people, that even when they go astray, God continues to rescue them. And so listen here, no matter how no matter how far someone might go astray, whether someone you know in your life or some of us here, no matter how far you go astray, if you put your faith in Jesus, no one is too far for God to rescue. God is the one who rescues the lost. God saves sinners. And so in our communities and in our families, and in our city, and in our spheres of influence, there are countless people who are lost to the schemes of the enemy, like Lot, captive, living in darkness, in bondage to sin and addiction, and in fear of those who are promoting it and telling them that they have to fall in line or else. People taken captive, not by nations or kings or political ideology, but the New Testament teaches that what actually takes us captive are deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Listen, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Our community, our culture, our friends, our families, people in our spheres of influence, what is taking them captive is the same thing that took us captive prior to Jesus. Sin, Satan, and death. And we can play it safe. 
like Abram, we can, we can play it safe. We can, we can not engage. We, we, might, we, we might not want to engage. It's, it's terrifying. We're not just up against giant slayers. We're up against Satan himself. It's a gnarly foe who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We can, we can, might not want to engage, but if you've trusted in Jesus, listen, if you've trusted in Jesus, you have a responsibility to engage. Here's why. Because if you are trusting in Jesus, then you are a member of God's household, the family of God. And as Abram mustered his household to go out and rescue Lot, God is mustering his household to go out and rescue the lost. If you are a member of the household of God, he calls you to engage in his mission to seek and save the lost. But there's another note in this text. These 318 people that Abram mustered of his own house, they were trained. You need to be trained. You must engage. The household of God is on a mission to seek and save the lost, but we must be trained. We must be trained in the word of God. We've got to be trained up in prayer, in worship, trained up in in maturity, in holiness, in righteousness. We need to bring our lives in line. We need to be trained in the same way that an athlete trains their bodies. We need to train our souls. We need to train our consciences. We need to train one another, sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. We must be trained. And we do that as the body of Christ engaging alongside one another, teaching one another, sitting under the teaching of the word, of not, just, not just understanding the word, but applying the word and being doers of the word. And you know what? We get trained by making mistakes. And the only way that we make mistakes is to have the courage to make mistakes. And to make mistakes in the context of brothers and sisters who love us, who will encourage us, who will cover us with grace, who will pray for us. The way we are trained is by engaging in the life of the family of God so that we can engage in the mission of God. It's not just showing up on Sundays. This is an absolutely essential part of the life of faith. But it's daily walking with Jesus, learning how to pick up your cross and follow him. And engaging in the mission, we must be trained to engage in the battle. Do not shy away from the responsibility to engage in this season. Don't play it safe. Don't play it safe. So how do we know if we're engaged in the battle? Maybe we're like, I I, I think so. I want to. How do I know? First, worship. We cannot minimize the value and the importance of worship in the mission of God. Worship has always been an incredibly important part of Reality Carpentry. It's why the majority of our worship set is at the end after the sermon so that we have that time to go before the Lord and allow the Spirit of God to make application and to to respond to what God is doing. That's such an important part. But also, worship is is this declaration that Jesus is victorious. How do you know you're engaged in the battle? Because you know who's already won the battle. 
and you sing his praise. That's what we do when we worship on Sundays or, or in our cars by ourselves. We are declaring to the physical realm and the spiritual realm that Jesus is Lord. He is victorious. He has defeated sin and death and he has rose from the grave. That's what worship is. We're declaring his victory. We engage in the battle through worship. We engage in the battle through prayer. Entering into that spiritual realm, desperation in prayer. God, we need you. Everything in this world wants to cloud you from me. And I need you to break through. I need you to speak. I need you to comfort me. I need you to go before me. I need you to empower me. I need you to do this because I can't do it. I need you to change hearts. I need you to save this person. I need you to heal that person. Desperation in prayer. It's how we engage in the battle. And proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone who will listen. That he is alive, that he's risen from the grave, that reconciliation with God is possible only through Jesus. And that all of those promises are true. Eternal life, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation to God, redemption, adoption as as children of God, all of these things, a, a future kingdom in the presence of God, pleasures forevermore, all of these things, all of these things God wants to give. And the way to receive them is Jesus. We engage in the battle through gospel declaration. We engage in the battle through demonstrating the goodness of Jesus in self-sacrificial service of one another and the community around us. Man, the people that Jesus hung out with, not who you think they'd be, weren't the religious people. They hung out. With, with, he hung out with the outcasts. He hung out with the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. He hung out with the sick because they needed a doctor. And by his presence with them, he demonstrates the love and the commitment of God to save them, to love them, to encourage them, to build them up and to call them to himself. The way we engage in the battle is by living life like Jesus. By demonstrating the love of Jesus. Listen, we can turn the church into a Sunday bunker where we just hunker down and let the lost fend for themselves. You know, make the church a a refuge from the world instead of a refuge for the world, as we're called to be. Or we can engage. Like Abram, we can step out in faith and let the world know that there's a Savior in Jesus and that God reigns. Play it safe. Don't play it safe. Engage. Abram is this beautiful example. Trusting the promises of God. He's a beautiful example of what it looks like to be on God's mission to seek and save the lost. But he's also, Abram's story is just a story that points us to Jesus. Abram is just the shadow. Jesus is the reality. Jesus didn't just risk everything. He knowingly willingly planned before the foundations of the earth to lay it all down. You want to know why following Jesus is so hard? Why being on mission with Jesus is so hard? It's because we follow a guy who planned his own crucifixion so that he could save lost people and then told us, pick up your cross and follow me. It's difficult. We need the spirit of God and we need one another to do that. 
Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says that though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It means though God created man in his own image, and man went astray in order to save us, God came to earth in our image so that he could go find us. And he lived the, the, the perfect righteous life. And even though he did not deserve to die, he planned that he would so that we could be saved. So that his blood would cover our sins. And so that through faith in him, the Holy Spirit would unite us to Christ. And his death would be our death and his life would be our life. That's the good news of the gospel that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, despised the cross, endured the cross, despising the shame. Because of what he came to save, the joy that was set before him, you laid down his life so we could have his life. That's the good news. That's the good news for you today. Those of you who need to be reminded, which hint is all of us, those of you who may have never heard before, but the reason Christ saves is because on the cross, Jesus killed your sin so that you could come back to life, that you could live in righteousness. Your sin is in the grave, yet you are still alive. Laid it all down because Jesus regarded your soul as more important than his temporary comforts. If Jesus regarded your soul and my soul more valuable than his temporary comforts, the souls of lost people in this world are more valuable than our temporary comforts. Must engage. Must engage. We're not only invited to be rescued by Jesus, but we're invited into his mission. And all those who are saved by Jesus are called to follow Jesus, follow him into his mission. We're members of his household that he is assembling to send on. Church, this isn't our home. Okay, this building is not our home. Carpentry is not our home. This world is not our home. Like Abram, we're sojourning. Sojourners in a land that is not ours. Outside of this place, there's a world full of pain and confusion. Many people are tempted to lose hope for the future. Even people in the church are tempted to lose hope for the future. And we can use this season to grab for ourselves as much comfort, as much limited comfort as we possibly can, comfort and security, or we can trust that God's promises are true, that Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and that there is a kingdom that Jesus is preparing for all of those who trust in him. We need to trust that God will provide what he has promised in his time, on his terms. Abram risked everything for those who had been lost, but there was also offered him a reward. He has this encounter with two kings. The king of Sodom offers him everything, but he will not be made rich by the king of a wicked place. And yet there's another king there who is 
every Bible nerd's favorite person in all of the scripture outside of Jesus, Melchizedek. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. It says that he's the king of Salem or Shalom, which means king of peace. Also, most likely, king of Jerusalem prior to the inhabitation of the Israelites in Jerusalem. Melchizedek is this mysterious figure and he comes out after this war and he brings Abram bread and wine and a blessing. Listen, if we have the blessing of God through faith in Jesus, then we will see the bare necessities of a meal as more valuable than the spoils of war. If we have nothing, but we have the favor and the blessing of God, then we have more than the riches and comforts of the world. And so Reality Carpinteria in this season, next season, wherever we are, trust God that he will provide what he has promised on his terms and in his own time. And he alone will be faithful. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus. And God, I pray now that as we, as we respond, as we worship, as we take communion, as we pray, Lord, that you would take these truths, Lord, of who you are and what you've done and what you are calling us to, Lord, that you would take these truths, that you would apply them to our hearts. And God, that you would give us courage to believe that your promises are true. And to engage in this mission to seek and save the lost. But first and foremost, Lord, we can't do that unless we know for certain that we have been saved. And so God, may we know, may we leave this place knowing that we have put our trust in Jesus. That we have put our faith in you. That it is by your righteousness that we are declared righteous. By your blood that we are forgiven. And by your life that we are given eternal life, Lord. May we trust in you today and always. God, lead us in this time and be glorified in our hearts and in our song, in our worship, and in all that we are. Right now, Lord, fall in this place and minister to your people. In Jesus' name, amen.